Now to the reading of God's word. Our scripture reading this afternoon is again from the book of Job as we draw near to its end. We'll read chapter 40, verse 6 through 42, verse 6, God's uh, second speech to his servant Job, where Job will respond at the end and say, Lord, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes have seen you. So let us read this together and see God as well. Job 40, beginning at verse 6. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Would you indeed in all my judgment, would you condemn me that you may be justified? Have you an arm like God, or can you thunder with a voice like his? Then adorn yourself with majesty and splendor and array yourself with glory and beauty. Disperse the rage of your wrath. Look on everyone who is proud and humble him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low. Tread down the wicked in their place. Hide them in the dust together. Bind their faces in hidden darkness. Then I will also confess to you that your own right hand can save you. Look now at Behemoth, which I made along with you. He eats grass like an ox. See now his strength is in his hips. His power is in his stomach muscles. He moves his tail like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are Tightly knit, his bones are like beams of bronze, his ribs like bars of iron. He is the first of the ways of God. Only he who made him can bring near his sword. Surely the mountains yield food for him and all the the beasts of the field play there. He lies under the lotus trees in a covert of reeds and marsh. The lotus trees cover him with their shade, the willows by the brook surround him. Indeed, the river may rage, yet he is not disturbed. He is confident, though the Jordan gushes into his mouth, though he takes it in his eyes, or one pierces his nose with a snare. Can you draw out Leviathan with a hook, or snare his tongue with a line which you lower? Can you put a reed through his nose, or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many supplications to you? Will he speak softly to you? Will he make a covenant with you? Will you take him as a servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird? Or will you leash him for your maidens? Will your companions make a banquet of him? Will they apportion him among the merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Lay your hand on him, remember the battle, never do it again. Indeed, any hope of overcoming him is false. Shall one not be overwhelmed at the sight of him? No one is so fierce that he would dare stir him up. Who then is able to stand against me? Who has preceded me that I should pay him everything under heaven? Is mine. I will not conceal his limbs, his mighty power, or his graceful proportions. Who can remove his outer coat? Who can approach him with a double bridle? 
Who can open the door of his face with his terrible teeth all around? His rows of scales are his pride, shut up tightly as with his seal. One is so near another that no air can come between them. They are joined one to another. They stick together and cannot be parted. His sneezings, sneezings flash forth light, and his eyes are like the eyelids of the morning. Out of his mouth go burning lights. Sparks of fire shoot out. Smoke goes out of his nostrils as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. His breath kindles coals, and a flame goes out of his mouth. Strength dwells in his neck, and sorrow dances before him. The folds of his flesh are joined together. They are firm on him and cannot be moved. His heart is as hard as stone, even as hard as the lower millstone. When he raises himself up, the mighty are afraid. Because of his crashings, they are beside themselves. Though the sword reaches him, it cannot avail, nor does spear, dart, or javelin. He regards iron as straw and bronze as rotten wood. The arrow cannot make him flee. Sling stones become like stubble to him. Darts are regarded as straw. He laughs at the threat of javelins. His undersides are like sharp potsherds. He spreads pointed marks in the mire. He makes the deep boil like a pot. He makes the sea like a pot of ointment. He leaves a shining wake behind him. One would think the deep had white hair. On earth, there is nothing like him which is made without fear. He beholds every high thing. He is king over all the children of pride. And then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You asked, who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Listen, please, and let me speak. You said, I will question you, and you shall answer me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Beloved, we look this morning at God's first speech where he took Job on a tour of creation and especially in chapter 39 showed us all of these great and awesome creatures like the war horse, the eagle, the wild ox, and the lion. And Job responded by confessing that he is of small account. Job rightly recognized his place before this great and awesome God. And yet when we come to the end of chapter 42, Job's response to God's second speech is a little bit different. Here he says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes have seen you. There is something that's revealed to Job in this second speech that apparently wasn't in the first. He has now seen God in a way that he had not 
before. Which leads us then to ask, what is the point of these two magnificent creatures that God describes? If you read some of the commentaries, um, they suggest that behemoth is the hippopotamus, leviathan is the crocodile. But if that's the case, why is it that Job responds in such a different way to the second speech than he did to the first? Or why is it that God gives the second speech at all? He's, he's just detailed all of these other powerful animals. Why is it that he, he would then need to, to add a, a sort of addendum and say, oh, by the way, look at the crocodile and the hippo. Can you see how that would be a, a sort of unnecessary and perhaps unsatisfying climax to the book? And it's also the difference in the start of God's first speech as opposed to To the second, he began in Job 38 saying that Job had darkened counsel, uh, meaning that God is going to address now his his counsel or his strategy in ruling over creation. But now in 40 verse 8, God seems to suggest a different theme in this second speech, that it's going to be about his justice. He says, would you indeed annul my judgment or condemn me that you may be justified? There's a different theme to this second speech which the crocodile and hippo reading of these chapters cannot account for. But God is describing something wholly different than he did in chapter 39. And you can sense that just from the length of these descriptions. Ten verses for behemoth and 34 for Leviathan. This is unmatched in descriptions of any other creature. Which usually, not just in Job 39 and 40 and 41, but but throughout the Bible, ordinarily are quite brief. And so we're left to wonder, who are these creatures? Why does God go on at such length? Why does Job respond the way that he does? And and how is it that this gives a satisfying conclusion to the book? We're going to see that this afternoon as we consider first these two portraits, then what they're meant to communicate, how that brings the book full circle, and what that means for Job And us. Look first with me at these two portraits that God gives. He introduces them in 40 uh, verses 6 through 8, suggesting that their description will somehow contribute to a defense of his justice. And then he asks in verse 9, Job, do you have an arm like God? Or are you able to thunder? With a voice like mine, can you tread on the wicked and bring the proud low? Verse 12. He's asking Job if he's able to go to battle against the forces of evil as God does. Notice he mentions pride already two times, and then again at the end of chapter 41. And then he says, if you can, verse 14, then I will confess to you that your own right hand can save you. The implication is if you cannot tread the evil, proud monsters that I'm about to describe, then that means you need to look to someone else to save you. And God then proceeds to describe behemoth in verses 15 through 24, describing his strength and power. In verse 16, his giant tail. In verse 17, bones like beams of bronze and ribs like bars of iron. He calls him the first or preeminent of the works or ways of God, the greatest of his creatures. 
who only God can bring the sword near. Can you sense already that this might be talking about more than a hippo? He speaks of the mountains yielding food for him, the the rivers raging, but him not being disturbed, even if you're to be pierced in the eyes or in the nose. God is describing the inability of man to overpower this creature. As one commentator says of verse 24, he is untamable. No human being can capture him or take him to a zoo. He is a powerful, hungry super beast, unable to be tamed by human beings. Verse 15 and verse 19 say, God yet has dominion over. The divine warrior of verse 9, who disperses the rage of his wrath, who treads the wicked and the proud in their place and brings them down to the dust. Only God can overpower this untamable super beast, who, who even his name suggests there is something unique about him. Behemoth is the plural of beast, even though he's spoken of throughout this description in the singular. This is a a plural of majesty, suggesting preeminence, where a a singular being is spoken of in in the plural. Again, I think suggesting that this is more than just a natural creature. And yet, nevertheless, God is sovereign even over him, and God, verse 19, can defeat him. And then God turns um, to another creature in chapter 41, Leviathan, who apparently lives in the sea, as God says, can you draw him out with a fishing hook? Or uh, verse 7, can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? He asks, can you pierce his jaw or put a reed through his nose? He asks in verse 3, will will he beg you? And you will say, Job, have mercy, and, and he'll try to strike a bargain with you and become your servant? Are you able to put him on a leash and sell him to merchants? The implied answer is no. Just lay your hand on him, verse 8, and you will never do it again. You will remember the battle. Any hope of overcoming him is false, but just looking at him is enough to overwhelm you. God is describing a creature that's even greater than behemoth, who, verse 10, no one is fierce enough to stir up. But then notice what God says in verses 10 and 11. Here he seems to be making a point about himself in this description of Leviathan, that if no one can stand against him, Leviathan, who then can stand against God? For everything under heaven is his. God is here hinting that everything he's telling us about this monster is also teaching us something about him because he will overcome him, as this monster is no match for him. This monster who God goes on to describe as mighty in power and unable to be approached with a bridle. Like behemoth, he is untamable. You cannot open the doors to his face with all of the terrible teeth around. His, his back is over, over, uh, covered with scales, which are his pride. Verse 18, he sneezes and lightning flashes. Out of his mouth goes burning light, sparks of fire shoot out, smoke comes from his nostrils, his breath kindles coals, and a flame goes out of his mouth. He sounds like a fire-breathing dragon. He doesn't sound like a crocodile. 
God speaks of the strength in his neck, verse 22, before which a sorrow or terror dances. I think that's a way of saying that um, fear goes before him and it makes everyone in his path run and flail. He's a terrifying creature. His flesh is firm and cannot be moved. His heart is hard as stone, even a millstone, it says, perhaps suggesting the, the evil of this cold-hearted creature who when he raises himself up, the mighty are afraid. And God has been asking, Job, are you able to defeat him? This fire-breathing dragon who breathes out malice. And the answer is no. This prolonged description is meant to make him and us fear. Neither sword, nor spear, nor dart, nor javelin can defeat him. Verse 26, iron and bronze are like straw that he chews up and spits out. The the arrow cannot make him flee. Sling stones are as stubble to him. Darts are regarded as straw. He laughs at the threat of the javelin. Mankind cannot defeat this monster who dwells in the deep, in the mire of the seas, the place of chaos that we were introduced to this morning, where he leaves a shining wake behind him, causing trouble and chaos wherever he goes. And God says in verse 33, on earth is not his equal. A creature without fear whose king over all the sons of pride. That's the fourth time it's mentioned pride. In this description of a creature so strong, so uh, evil, so untamable and incomparable, so hard-hearted, which God is describing for Job to somehow make him understand God's justice. They were left to wonder what, what exactly is going on. Who is this fire-breathing dragon, this proud monster who's covered in scales? We mentioned already that there are a number of interpretations of this that simply don't make sense. Many take behemoth to be a hippopotamus, um, even though it says that he has a tail like a cedar, which hippos don't that it finds its food in the mountains, which hippos don't. And and even though every other animal in chapter 39 is simply called by its natural name, but in chapter 39, this supposed hippo is called behemoth. A plural name given to a, a singular creature who God says no man is able to capture. Now, one of the reasons that I don't think that it's a hippo is because ancient Egyptians actually did capture and kill hippos. The same is true of crocodiles. I have a brother who just moved to Florida and has already met some crocodile hunters there. And so it doesn't seem that this is a crocodile and a hippo that it's saying man is not able to capture. But it seems this description is not talking about any animal known to us. It's not talking about an ordinary creature, both in the case of Leviathan and Behemoth. By the way, I should mention Job has already talked about Leviathan in the book back in chapter 3. I think he alludes to it also in chapter 26 when he speaks of the fleeing serpent. Leviathan is also mentioned in places like Isaiah 27 and Psalm 74 as a great sea monster and serpent. Psalm 104. And so while there may be some question for us as to what this creature is, it's clear that at least Job would have understood what God was talking about. As would the ancient Hebrews who, who would have been reading this in the Old Testament. 
And I don't think they would have understood it as a crocodile, who it's entirely possible to catch in the ways that God describes in verses 1 to 7, who doesn't breathe fire as God describes in verses 18 to 21, and who it would be an overstatement to say, on earth is not his equal. Leviathan is not a crocodile. Leviathan is not a mere reptile or ordinary animal as we know it, but in the ancient Near East and in the Old Testament as well, Leviathan was understood to be a symbol of cosmic evil, of supernatural chaos. That's how Job would have understood this. That as God is now addressing the existence of evil and of suffering, he does so in the symbolic terms that an ancient Semite would have used, an evil, sea-dwelling, serpentine creature called Leviathan. Remember, this is a poetic book, kind of like the Song of Songs that we looked at last year. And so it's not out of keeping with the book of this genre for God to use a symbolic image to depict something else. There we saw how he uses the symbolic image of marriage to depict the gospel reality of of union with Christ. Here, he uses a symbolic image to depict the forces of evil. It's not out of keeping with a book of this genre, especially as it is a symbolic image, that of a serpent, that the Bible uses all the way from Genesis 3 to Revelation 12 and Revelation 20, as we heard a few weeks ago in that sermon about that serpent or dragon theme throughout Scripture. Not only is this how um, ancient Near East sources understood Leviathan or the biblical sources in Isaiah and the Psalms, even in Job, But this is also the way that this has been understood throughout the history of the church. The the church fathers understood Job 41 in this way, from from Origen to Ephraim the Syrian to Gregor the Great. This is how Luther understood Job 41. Did you notice in that song of preparation that we sang as he spoke of Satan, the prince of darkness, he used the language of Job 41.33 and said, on earth is not his equal. This is how Bunyan understood Leviathan. In in the Pilgrim's Progress, he describes that dragon, Apollyon, with the language and the imagery of Job 41. There's a long history of understanding Leviathan in this way. And Behemoth, though it's not quite as clear, sounds a lot like the beasts in, in some of the ancient Near Eastern epics that also symbolized supernatural chaos, even death itself. Some suggest Revelation 12 and 13 may even pick up on this with the language of the beast. That's what behemoth means. All this to say, both in the ancient Near East and in the biblical world, there is great precedent for understanding these two creatures, not as ordinary animals, but behemoth as the the sort of storybook embodiment of death itself and Leviathan as the arch enemy of God, the prince of evil who holds the power of death. As Satan... Does this not better explain the meaning of God's second speech? If these were mere animals, a hippo and a crocodile, this would add nothing to the first speech, nor would it explain the differing responses of Job in the first and second speech. But in this reading, the reading that that I think the church has adopted for much of its history, the, the hints of supernatural evil that we saw this morning in the first speech are now brought to the fore as God gives us a little peek behind the veil to see the great battle that's being waged. The great battle that's even hinted at in 40 verses 9 to 14. 
Remember, the whole of this second speech is there introduced as a defense of God's justice as the one who, unlike Job, is able to tread the proud and the wicked in their place to overcome them and bring them down to the dust. That's what he says in Job 40, verses 12 and 13. In fact, even the imagery of God coming in the whirlwind, as he does here a second time, suggests that God is coming to do battle on behalf of his people. Read Nahum chapter 1 or Psalm 18 or any of of the many other places where God comes in the whirlwind in defense of his people to do battle against the forces of evil. That's the point of this second speech which not only accounts for the difference in Job's response or for the existence of the second speech at all, but notice also how that brings this whole book full circle. Here at the very end of the book, we are brought face to face with the prince of darkness, the great dragon of old, the king of all the sons of pride who on earth is not his equal. The same one we met way back in chapter one who came into God's presence to do battle, who is going to and fro on the earth trying to wreak havoc on God's children and God's world and God's glory. God now brings him up again at the end of the book to give Job a peek behind the veil to see what's going on. People often say that God never really gives Job any sort of an answer. That may be partly true, but I'm not sure it's entirely true. For God is here showing him at least some of what's going on that Job was not aware of. That God is doing battle with Leviathan, that he is going to war with Satan. He is treading the serpent underfoot to the suffering of his servant, Genesis 3. Remember we talked in the very first sermon of this series back in April about how Genesis 3 verse 15 is the the sort of framing lens of this whole book. God treading the serpent underfoot through the faithful suffering of his servant. And now, at the end of the book, we see this subtle hint in Job 40, verses 12 and 13, of God treading the wicked down into the dust of verse 13. And then we're introduced to a dragon. You hear all of the subtle hints and allusions back to Genesis chapter 3 of pride and dust and and a dragon. You see how this brings the whole book full circle and and how the very way in which God will eventually defeat this serpent, Genesis 3, through suffering, is even being pictured in Job's life. We know from the rest of the Bible that the way God will overcome the dragon is through Christ. In fact, that's what we just sang. On earth is not his equal. But then it says, we're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Our striving would be losing. But thanks be to God, the right man is on our side. Christ Jesus, Lord Sabaoth, is with us and he must win the battle. And he does it through dying. He does it through suffering. Gregor the Great put it this way. He said, For this end, the only begotten Son of God took on himself the form of our infirmity. For this, the invisible not only became visible, but despised, enduring the jests of of insult, the reproaches of derision, and torments of suffering, so that God in his humility might overcome the pride of the one in Job 41-34 who's called the king of all the sons of pride. 
Gregory said, God took on himself this humility in order to teach us not to be proud. Since the pride of the devil caused the origin of our fall, the humility of God was found as the instrument of our redemption. Since the pride of the devil was the origin of our fall, the humility of God was found as the instrument of our redemption for our enemy who was created great among all things, wished to appear exalted above all things. But our Redeemer, who remains great above all things, deigned to become little among all things. God overcomes the pride of evil and sin through the humility of the redemptive suffering of his Son. And that's what this book has been picturing for us in shadow form. So now Job responds in chapter 42. and says, Lord, now I know that you can do everything. Now that you have given me this little peek behind the veil, I retract my complaint. I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful, too profound for me, Psalm 131. But now I see. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes have seen you. Now I understand the difference between you and my colossal adversary and I understand that that all those times I called you my enemy, all those times I called you my adversary, that was him, not you. But you've been going to war on my behalf. Congregation, do you see now why it is that Job responds the way he does to this second speech? That's the point of of verse 6 when he says, I abhor myself. He's actually saying, I I reject. That's the verb, I I reject. And then there is no direct object following it. And and so most English translations, like the New King James, you you see it's in uh, italics there, add the word myself. But what he actually seems to be rejecting is his complaint his legal dispute that he's been bringing before God, and the reason he does is because God has answered him. And then when it says, and I repent in dust and ashes, it's interesting, that word that's translated repent is actually the same word that every other time it comes up in the book of Job is translated as comfort. It'll be translated that way again in just a few verses in Job 40 to 11. It was translated that way back in chapter two when the friends came to comfort him. And so what Job seems to be saying is that he rejects his complaint and even in the dust and ashes in which he lies finds comfort because of what God has has just revealed to him because God has revealed himself to him and has shown him his great adversary and revealed that it's not God who hates him but rather who loves him and is going to battle for him and who understands the suffering that Job has endured so well because he knows Job's adversary better than anyone else. Because he shows Job that God will overcome this adversary. He shows Job that he is his Leviathan on his leash who will not go one step further than God permits and one day will be vanquished forever, never again able to torment God's servant. That's what God is showing him. This enemy will be vanquished. And we know that he will be through the suffering of the one Job foreshadows. 
This is what God has been picturing in the suffering of Job, the overcoming of Satan, the great accuser of chapters 1 and 2, through the innocent, redemptive suffering of his son. And so Job and you and I, whatever trials we may endure in this life, may find the same comfort of Job 42.6 because we know that God has freed us from the tyranny of the devil and made us his own in body and soul, in life and in death, through the blood of his son. That's our comfort. Not the comfort of the graceless religion of the friends, Not the comfort of the cold, distant God of Elihu, but the comfort of the gospel, the comfort of God overcoming Leviathan, our great enemy, the prince of darkness through his son, our champion of God drawing near to us in grace to show us that he is not the adversary we sometimes think him to be in our weakness, but is for us. It has shown us that preeminently through the death of his son. Which means, beloved, that when the prince of of darkness, when the, the darkness of Leviathan's presence overwhelms you, when the suffering of this life or, or the sins of others or even of yourself are, are just too much to bear and you are overwhelmed, you may turn with confidence to this Savior alone. The one who overcomes the king of pride by his humility unto death. That's how we know that God is not indifferent toward our suffering. And it's also how we know that our great enemy has been defeated and one day our suffering will be no more. Because Christ in his person and work has overcome him. That, that's what we read in the call to worship from Colossians 2. Or you can read Hebrews 2. It says the same, that in his death, he destroys the one who holds the power of death. That's our comfort. God himself and what he has done in his son. That's Job's comfort. His Redeemer, who he has been longing for in chapter 9, in chapter 14, and 16, and 19, who has now come to his rescue, who has not yet freed him from his suffering. Job is still in the ash heap, but has proved to him that he's for him. Do you know this comfort? Like Job, are you able to say, even in the dust and ashes, I can have comfort because I know what God has done for me in his son? These chapters are inviting you into that comfort by faith to behold this good gospel news and say with Job, Lord, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes have seen you. We see God by beholding what he's done In the gospel, we see him with the eye of faith through the preaching of the word and in a moment through the bread and the cup where even though we still dwell in this sin-cursed world as we've been reminded this week that, that death still reigns, we know that Christ through death has overcome the one who holds the power of death. That's what we're reminded at the Lord's table where even as we may lie in the dust and ashes of the suffering Leviathan has caused, we may have comfort because we know that God has entered into that suffering and will one day overcome it forever. 
And so this bread and this cup are a foretaste of, of the wedding supper of the Lamb where we will feast with him in that place where tears and sorrow will be no more, but we will see him face to face and God will be with us. May every one of us know that comfort as Job did and may we walk by faith until we see him as he is. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this glorious vision of your power and strength in being able to overcome the prince of darkness, the king of all the sons of pride. That you have done that through the humility of Christ's incarnation, suffering, and death. Which prove that not only are you not indifferent to our suffering, not only are you not the author of evil, but you are the overcomer of it. Lord, we thank you and praise you for this comfort that is ours as we see what you've done in your son who has fully paid for all our sins and freed us from the tyranny of the devil. Help us now to go in the comfort of knowing that and to be strengthened in that comfort as we now partake of Christ's body and blood.